Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Doing pretty good? Good. It's good to have you in the room. It's good to have you that are joining and watching online. Uh, our online audience, I don't know if you guys know this, continues to grow and grow and grow. And so we're just happy to have you, especially if this is your first time. Uh, I am so excited about the series we're jumping into today. This is going to be a brand new series, just like Blake said. It's called Friend of Sinners. And uh, I mean, I, let's be honest. It, a lot of you probably heard that title, whether it was just now or maybe earlier in the week, you saw something on social media, and there's not a big part of you that goes, yes, that's what I need right now. Uh, but the more I spent time on this and the more I understood the title that Jesus was given as friend of sinners, the more excited I got about talking about it today because it was part of Jesus' reputation and it wasn't a compliment. And so I, I started thinking, okay, my life and growing up, did I have reputations among people around me that maybe I wasn't a big fan of? And here's the, here's the thing. I've had different reputations growing up in different contexts in which I've done life, but none of them actually seem totally true or totally accurate. Do you know what I'm talking about? So like, let me say this. If I went to my teachers, or if you went to my teachers as a kid, they would probably say something along the lines of, hey, he's a smart kid, he's well-behaved, he does good in school, et cetera. That, that would be part of my, my reputation at school. But if you ask my friends, it would be a different reputation, maybe outgoing, adventurous, energetic, right? I've been called the Energizer Bunny before. It's just, whoo, I'm just wound. If you would ask employers, what they would say is I'm hardworking, I'm on time, I'm positive. And if you, loud, thanks, Blake. We're gonna, we're gonna meet, can we bleep that online? Think there's a delay. If you'd ask my parents, the word demonic would come to mind. When I was at home, I was a different breed. In fact, they would go in and they would have parent-teacher conferences and my teachers would start describing me some of the stuff I just said. And they literally looked at it year after year. I think you have us confused with the parents of another child. This is not, we experience none of what you are saying about our child at home. And so I got in trouble for that. I got grounded all the time. It was kind of a perpetual state of being. Most of my life, and I think this is true for you. I think this is true for all of us in this room. Most of my life, I have desired to be known as I am rather than how I've been perceived. Most of my life, I have, been des I have desired to be known as I truly am, not as how I've been perceived. You know, there, there's some truth to every category, every different reputation that I've talked about. That there are some truth, there's partial truths, things that are, are somewhat true about me, but, but it's never really like the core and there's something about bad reputations, isn't it, that it's just almost impossible to outrun. I still, to this day, I still run into people that I knew in childhood, like in elementary school, who assigned me a reputation that I lived up to as like a fourth grader, and it's applied to me now decades, decades later. Do you ever feel like someone limits you or boils you down even to some of the worst moments, some of the worst pieces or parts of your reputation. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your work context, maybe it's friends, maybe it's neighbors, wh whatever it is. Do you ever feel like you get limited or reduced as a person, sometimes to the worst things that you've been caught doing? Funny thing is we all believe that we can change, but I think if we really get to the heart of it, many of us don't think or truly believe that other people around us could change. That's what we're going to jump into today. We're going to look at Jesus and a particular story with Jesus, and uh, I, I just can't wait, so we're just going to jump in. Luke chapter 7, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that, open it up. If you're in the room, we have Bibles in the back. Please help yourself. Please keep it. It's our gift to you. If you're watching online, we'll have words on the screen as well, but let's read. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. It says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, 
And you say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So this, this was a reputation given to Jesus by the religious institution of the time. Jesus came as a part, he, he was a rabbi, he was a teacher, he was Jewish. And so the Pharisees were like the Jewish sect of leaders. They were in charge, they had control, they had ability to influence and lead. And so the people did not like Jesus, not because of who Jesus was, but because Jesus spent more time with people not like the Pharisees than he did with the Pharisees. And so they start reducing him. Remember, remember we talk about there's pieces of a reputation that are true, and then there are pieces of a reputation that just aren't complete. And this would be an example of one of them. He, he's a glutton and a drunkard. Why did they say that? Because he hung out with gluttons and drunks. He hung out with people that society liked to push aside, society liked to forget, society liked to just kind of close their eyes to and limit their vision. Jesus sought out those people. In fact, one text I was reading this week said, uh, the reason that religious leaders were so frustrated is because there was a right crowd and a wrong crowd, and Jesus didn't spend time hanging out with the right crowd. Instead, he spent most of his time hanging out with the wrong crowd, and so they hated him for it. So Jesus was known as a friend of sinners, a friend of rejects, a friend of outcasts. So this sets it out. I want you to understand, this is the reputation that Jesus is walking into. So where we're at, we're in a place called Capernaum today. So this is in Israel. I just want to take you to the scene so you can see it. Capernaum is a city that's on the Sea of Galilee. You can see it right here at the top of the screen. Capernaum is where they're at. They, they interact or intersect with a number of different people. Jesus interrupts a funeral. He comes into contact with a Roman soldier. Uh, he talks to uh, messengers from this man named John the Baptist. I mean, so he interacts with all these different people, but then it builds up to this point. This is Luke chapter 7, verse 36. It says, when one of the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees? The religious leaders, the influencers, those, those that are in charge in the Jewish faith, Jewish faith. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So I had to give you a picture or a visual to see what, what does reclining at the table. In fact, I didn't even understand this until I was in the Middle East a few years ago. And when you walk in, you, when you walk into somebody's home, they don't have furniture like you and I have furniture. There's not like sofas and lazy boys and recliners, and there's not like a big dining room table. In fact, there's usually like a really nice ornate rug or piece of carpet that's in there. It's just beautiful. And this is how they do meals. Everything's family style. So they would bring it in and, and there's no silverware even most of the time. I mean, you just reach in and you grab with your hands. And I mean, so you can imagine a season like this, right? And it's just like, whoa, this must be spreading a lot of stuff. So anyway, here's where we're at. This is what Jesus would have walked into, something like this. This is modern day. Obviously, there's couches and whatnot. But, but back then, there would be cushions. And so someone would walk in, a guest or someone in the neighborhood, somebody in the community, whatever, you would walk in and you would actually lay down on the ground on these cushions. There'd usually be dates or coffee or things like that, kind of like these hors d'oeuvres, appetizers. And so Jesus laid down, he reclined at the table. And what you would do is you would put your feet kind of behind you and you would wait for the meal to be served. So, so just get this, Jesus is a teacher. He's a guest. He's come into this place. He's reclining at the table, and then here's what's ha what happens. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
I mean, can we just hashtag awkward? I mean, like, put yourself in the shoes. You're in the room. You're watching this happen. You're hungry. Again, you got to understand, the way it would be set up, houses weren't closed off and blocked off. Things would be wide open. Doors would be wide open. There'd be a courtyard. Anybody could come in. Anybody could come out. And so a lot of guests, especially uninvited guests, would come in. They were curious or they were hungry. And so imagine you're a Pharisee. We're going to find out his name is Simon. Imagine you're a Pharisee. You're hosting a very notable, well-respected, or at least well-known teacher in your house. And he's reclining at the table, and you're trying to size him up. You're trying to impress. You're trying to put on a good reputation. And then this woman comes in who is just a mess. That, that phrase, who lived a sinful life, you know what's funny is the text does not actually tell us what her sinful life was. I think there's speculation. Maybe she was a prostitute because she was known throughout the community. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she was a drug addict. Maybe she was a thief. Whatever it was, she was known for her sin. She was known for her sinful life, not just with the Pharisee, not even just with Jesus, known in the community as a sinner. And so she comes in and it's like she, she starts making a scene. In fact, it says when she pulls out the alabaster jar of perfume, can you imagine the aroma that would be in the room as Jesus almost seems unfazed, almost seems like he's not even, he doesn't even address it, he doesn't say anything, he just lets her do what she does, and then it says she drops down her hair. And culturally, I mean, for us, that's like, (gasps) I read one commentary that said that's like the equivalent of, of being topless. They were so conservative. Their hair was always, always kept up. It was hidden. It was covered. And so when she did this, it was so overt, so shocking that everybody in the room knew what is going on. Jesus seems pretty unaffected, pretty unfazed. And then we get a glimpse of Simon's heart. Verse 39. It says, when the Pharisee who invited him in saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a, say it with me, sinner. Wow. I mean, you just imagine the room, imagine different people, different perspectives, different ages, different walks of life. All these people are in a room. They're all pretty, pretty interested in what Jesus has to say. And they're watching the situation unfold. And in the hearts of not just Simon, I would bet, but in so many others in the room looking at Jesus and now questioning Jesus, if you really knew who she was, you wouldn't let her anywhere near you. There's no way you'd let her touch you. There's no way you'd even let her in. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, did not believe forgiveness existed for people like her. They just didn't. That's the lifestyle you chose. There's repercussions for that. There's no grace. There's no mercy. There's no welcoming. It's kind of just, I'm going to keep you distant. You're, you're gross. You're ugly. You're a reject. You're not, please leave. Because what we're trying to do is be serious. Have a serious conversation. We're trying to grow. We're trying to invest in ourselves and you're distracting from what we are trying to do as God's people. Do you see the error 
that's going on in the heart of this man named Simon and so many others. This is so funny. Do you notice that they never refer to her by her name? Did you catch that? Simon will be mentioned here in just a second, and it's not a great, boy, Simon. It's going to turn a little bit differently because it's Jesus. But they never refer to her by her name. That just struck me so much. He never introduces her or describes her as, you know, this beautiful young woman that came in. He never describes her as, you know, the single mom of three kids. Never describes her as, you know, she's so-and-so's daughter, and I knew her as a kid. And when he doesn't know her by name, he only knows her by her reputation. What a pity. I just want to ask this question. Do you ever feel like you are known by your reputation rather than your heart? Fill in the context. Work, family, neighborhood, friends. Do you ever feel like people know you for what you've done? And oftentimes, like I was saying at the beginning, it's not for great stuff, right? It's not for like super smart, great, well-educated decisions. Usually it's like, I remember that one time. And you showed up and it got nuts. That's, that's usually, that was my experience a lot of times. I would be known for things that I had done that were either dumb or stupid or unwise or hurtful. So maybe you are known in your context, your community, maybe you're known as the workaholic. I just want to give some examples. Of these. Maybe you're the workaholic. Maybe this, maybe you're the pretty one. Maybe you're the one with the short temper. This one's fun. I just could wait to say this. Maybe you're the family liberal or the family conservative. What are you known as in your context, in your family? Maybe you're the smart one, the dumb one, the rich one, the poor one, the one who made it, the one who didn't. Maybe you're the one that's too much or too big or too needy. What, what is your reputation that you have among some of those that are closest to you? And here's what's funny. No matter what we do, isn't it true sometimes that reputations just tend to stick? Like you just can't quite get totally away. And when you feel like at some point you've put enough distance between you and that reputation, it always seems like somebody intersects from the past. Maybe it's on social media. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's family. You do another get-together. Isn't it true? It's so hard to outrun these. I think that's just a horrible place to be. I was thinking about some of the stuff I was known for as a kid, and I just had fun thinking of these. <laughs> you know what I was known for in my family? I tripped over my beagle one year and I broke my ankle, and it was like a year recovery. That's not a great thing to be known for. You know, I was wrestling with him. He's 25 pounds. I tripped over him. I popped the ankle. I was on crutches, a boot. People asked me, what'd you do? I went, I tripped over my beagle. That was the reputation I had. My, my dad actually gave me the nickname Klutz. I was a klutz because it didn't matter what I did, there was usually something stupid that preceded a broken bone or a sprained muscle. That was kind of my life. There was one year I went home, my dad had just gotten a brand new zero-turn lawnmower. Thing was unbelievable. I mean, huge. I'm looking at it going, could have paid for my college, could have paid for a lawnmower. You went with the lawnmower. And so I'm looking at this thing and I'm like, can I drive it? Right? May as well get some money out of it, right? Get an experience. I got a story. I'll tell you that. I start driving it and we got like 10-foot ditches by our house. And thank the Lord it had a roll bar because I rolled the thing into the ditch, brand new. I still remember the conversation. I went up to dad and I said, hey, uh, your brand new lawnmower, I just put it in the ditch. It's currently upside down. The motor turned off. It's kind of weird. A lot of black smoke. 
And he goes, no, you didn't. I said, do I look like I'm joking right now? He goes, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. We pull it out, sure enough. That thing burns smoke for like 20 minutes. Guess what I'm known for now? Hey, Dad, can I ride the lawnmower? No. I'll do the ditch part. I'm also known for other stuff. Like things I've said that have like crippled people. Things I've said that have, have caused so much damage that it's resulted in years of division and pain and counseling. I've, I've said some of that stuff. I've also been known for times that I've dropped the ball, times that I did a lot of damage, saying things or doing things, man, I, about a thousand times over, I've wished I could undo. And sometimes I cringe at the thought of what my reputation must be, not with other people, not even with you, but with God. You ever think about that? You ever think about when God sees me, what does he see? What, what is my reputation with him? I think one of the coolest things about God is also something that has just pulled me so far away from him. I've tried to avoid him as a result. It's because of this, it's this phrase or this term called omniscient. It's all-knowing. God knows everything. Here's what it says, Psalm 139, verse 1. It says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with how many of my ways? All my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. What must my reputation be with God? When God gets the unfiltered, unhindered look at my heart, when he's not just looking at the things that I've done that were stupid, he's looking at the things that I've thought that were just evil. He's not just looking at the things he's, that I said. He's looking at the condition of my heart. And so this thing that I think is so cool, God, how big, how great, how awesome, how wonderful, how mighty is he, he who knows everything. I think that's amazing. I think that's unbelievable. And it's also extremely humbling because I can't help but think, man, when you see all of me, what, what do you see? And instead of running to him, there's a big piece of me that wants to run the opposite direction. Here's the question for you. When God looks at you, what do you think he sees? When God looks at you right now, what do you think he sees? For most of my life, I have assumed that God sees me just like Simon saw that woman known for her reputation rather than her heart. And I can't help but think about person after person after person after relationship, after job, after living situation. As I look back on my life, I just can't help but see similar threads and wonder, how could God not see me the way that everybody else does? Because he sees the worst of me. What do you think he sees? Let's keep reading Luke 7, verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, 
I have something to tell you. <laughs> Does your parent ever say that to you? You ever just say something like quick or quippy and you're just like, whoop, I just said it. And then your mom goes, David, I want to tell you something. Do you brace for a compliment? I'm going, oh, shoot. Backtrack, backtrack, backtrack. And, and so Simon, I, I just can't help but think, how does he respond? You know, does he say, oh, tell me, teacher. Please tell me. Or is he sitting there going, oh, tell me, teacher. Tell me. I'm ready. You're about to compare me to her, aren't you? Man, I've done a good job, and I've hosted. I've done well for myself. I'm put together. I'm religious. I'm a leader. I'm in the community. You're about to tell me something. I can't wait. What do you have to tell me, Lord? What do you have to tell me? Here's what Jesus says. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. So he jumps into a story. I just want to tell you a story. Oh, okay, good. My guard's down. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other one 50. Neither of them, catch this, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Drum roll, here's the question. Now, which of them will love him more? Put yourself in the spot. Put yourself in, in the town. Put yourself in the community. Put yourself in the house. You're in the living room. You're reclining, you're eating dates, you're sipping coffee. Jesus says, Simon, I got a question for you. It's a test. Can you pass the test? And all of us in the room, right, we're the bystanders. We're going, I know the answer, right? Some of you wrote it down already. You're like, I already know. I circled it. I underlined it twice. The one who owes him more, he's going to love him more, right? So, but before we get there, I wanted to, to show you a picture of this because I think sometimes we forget one extra zero makes a big difference. So here's person A. You can see that here. Person A owes him $50,000. I'm just trying to make this relevant. I'm trying to make this today in this, today's context what you might understand. $50,000 is the debt load that this person owes. They are incapable of paying it back. Jesus says that's, that's person A. But then person B, you just add one more zero, and it's not like double. It's not quadruple. It is 10 times the amount. This person owes so much. This person owes $500,000. And here, here's the funny thing neither one of them are ever going to be able to pay that off. This isn't even really a trick question. Jesus says, if you, if you forgive the debts of both of them, which one will love the moneylender more? Which one do you think? Probably person B. As I was writing this, oh man, prepare for... Uh, Prepare for judgment of your own heart, because I was judged. We could assume some things about these two people. Isn't it funny that Jesus does not give us a lot of information? So I, I just started assuming. I, I started writing this down. We could probably assume that they're horrible with money. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody? They're probably not. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. They can't pay it. They're probably not good with money. They probably didn't learn how to budget, whatever. So they're probably horrible with money. They've probably lived above their means. Agreed? Come on, there's no trick yet. Yet. They probably made a series of bad decisions. Amen? They'd probably end up here again. Right? Isn't it funny how when we see something like this, we hear a story, somebody that did something, or they're in a situation, they're in trouble, they're stuck, they can't get out, they can't do it. Isn't it funny what starts going through our minds, what starts going through our heads, and what we're associating or assuming based on reputation, or sometimes not even reputation, by a limited, scarce amount of information. 
that we start filling in the gaps, filling in the blanks with what we would assume or what we would think. But maybe there are some things that we don't know about these two people. This is when I started feeling convicted as I started thinking, not just metaphor, people. Maybe one of them has medical debt from a family member who got cancer. Well, that feels convicting. All of a sudden, maybe they're not stupid. Maybe life just happened and it wailed on them and they got put in a situation that they couldn't get themselves out of. Maybe one of them was a single parent who just has an income issue because they're, they're a full-time parent, full-time working, and so you're going, what? Makes sense to me. Maybe one of them didn't have a mom or a dad around as a child to teach them about money. They grew up with a, a slightly less deck of cards. They weren't playing with the full deck. They were set up from the beginning for failure. Well, that, 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 that's not their fault. Maybe instead of a life of bad decisions, this one's so important, maybe there was one big one that put them in this situation. Man, I can't help but think how many people and people groups, even we as the church, assume judgment on. Not for a life or a trajectory or a series of repeated decisions. Oftentimes we can see the product of one decision and we associate a reputation with them forever. So this is what's so fascinating about this parable, and I love how Jesus does this. He's just a master. Jesus does not tell Simon what they did or how they got there. Not because it doesn't matter, but because it's more realistic. Please write that down. Jesus doesn't tell Simon all of the details not because it doesn't matter, but because it makes it more realistic. Pause. We have no idea what's going on in the lives of people around us. You know that? I'm just watching. There's a piece. Think about debates. You think about the election. You think about people you interact with or see on the street. You think about signs. You think about social media. Don't even get me started. We see so little, and we draw so many conclusions, and I'm going to stand up here and tell you we have no idea what is going on in the hearts of people that we are judging. None. And I wanted to make sure we caught this because it's everybody from our family to the president to the homeless man on the exit to the neighbor down the road. It is every single one. We have no idea. We have no idea. That's why this parable, I think, is so effective. It's so captivating for me because as I'm watching it, I'm going, I'm working with the same amount of information that Simon was. Do we ever really know the hearts of people we judge? So what Jesus is about to reveal to Simon is he's got vision problems. He says this, verse 43. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt. The bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. This is so funny. You've judged correctly, Simon, in the parable. You've judged incorrectly in real life. 
That was me getting ready for this message. That I knew the right answer in Jesus' story, and I've lived the wrong answer in my life. If Simon's got a vision problem, so do I. Luke 44, Jesus says this, he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Catch it. Do you see this woman? Not right in front of you, not in your space, not in your home. Do you see this woman the way I see her? Gulp. I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. He goes on. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Jesus calls out Simon in a way that would shock this culture. That if you were a guest invited in someone's home, you only praise the guest, you only the host, you only talk about how great he is, you only thank him and publicly, and there's honor that's so significant in their culture. And Jesus says, I'm gonna flip the table. You are so wrong, you are so unhealthy in this moment, not from a physical standpoint, but from a heart standpoint. He said, Simon, when I came in, you have been sending me messages that everybody else has picked up on. You don't know if you believe me. You don't know if you like me. You're testing me. You're judging me. And on top of that, you're judging this woman and you got it all turned around. And so I'm going to switch and I'm going to tell you what is going on. And I'm going to speak to your heart, not to condemn you, but to save you. Simon may have been the debtor that owed less, but remember his debt was still unpayable. I just want to hit pause and say, you may feel like you've screwed up your life. You may feel like you have made a thousand mistakes or maybe just a couple big ones. You may have been set up well and blown it, or you may have been dealt a bad hand that crippled you from the start. Some of you just need to hear this today, and I just hear this. Please listen. Jesus sees you, not your reputation, not your sin not your brokenness. Jesus sees your heart and he loves you. And so many of us in our world are carrying around a backpack full of shame that gets heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And Jesus, just like he's speaking to Simon, is also speaking to the woman, is also speaking to us. He says, I see you as you are and I love you. Some of you just need to hear that. But then he turns to the woman, verse 48. Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The Greek translation is so important. It's not, there's a tense thing going on. You know, I've tried to explain Greek before. I'm horrible at it, right? You're going to remember that. That'll be part of my reputation. But your sins are forgiven. Jesus says, past tense already completed. Is significant. Jesus speaks to the woman in a way, in a very specific way that everybody in the room would hear. 
Jesus is not saying what you've done has led to forgiveness. He's saying you've already been forgiven and it led to how you treated me today. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He knew that place was hostile for her. He knew Simon wasn't going to step up and be the host that welcomed her and cared for her. So Jesus assumed the role of host and sent her out in peace and said, go, you are forgiven. That what you felt, those tears that were welling up inside of you, that, that you were wondering or questioning, am I really forgiven? Am I really saved? Am I really, have I really been washed clean, just like Jesus had said? Because so many scholars think this was not the first time she was around Jesus. And so as she leaves, Jesus sends her in peace, assuming the role of host for her sake. Simon is not the enemy here. Simon's the patient. Simon's also a sinner. I think it's important for us to remember Jesus came not just, not just for one part of the population, not just for one denomination, not just for people who try, not just for the rich or the white. Jesus came for everybody. And he did for everyone what no one could do for themselves. But I love his approach and how he can minister to both the woman and call the Pharisee to something greater. Charles Spurgeon, just a phenomenal mind. He's an author. He writes this. He says, the law is for the self-righteous to humble their pride. And you see how that plays it out with Simon? To humble his pride of thinking he's more or better or greater than he actually is. The law that God has given us through the word says... No, no, no. The law is for the self-righteous to bring them back down. To say, let me remind you that your debt is still unpayable. That you are just like everybody else around you. But then he says this, the gospel is for the lost to remove their despair. As he looks to the woman who's broken and crippled and hurting and has a reputation and a past that will absolutely yield consequences in this life, Jesus says to her, yeah, but there's good news for you. That how you will end your life is not in despair, but in hope and in peace, which is why Jesus sends her out. Friends, our temptation will be to judge as Simon did. But our invitation is to love as Jesus did. Our temptation in this world our temptation online, our temptation watching debates, our temptation watching the news, our temptation interacting with people and coworkers and family members, our temptation is gonna be to judge like Simon did, to draw our own conclusions and to, to issue verdicts or decisions or convictions. That's not why Jesus came. Our invitation from him is to love other people. The whole premise of the parable says the one who has been forgiven much loves much. And we in this church have a calling to love this church, to love this community, to love these people, to love this city in a way that rivals anywhere else that people could go. And so I just want to ask you, who will you choose to love this week? 
Are you willing to look across the aisle, look across the street, look across the desk, scroll through Facebook, people that have rubbed you the wrong way, people who have hurt you, people who don't deserve grace or forgiveness or mercy or second chances. Do you have the guts to love them, to even see them the way that Jesus sees them? There's a family friend of ours this week I was talking to and uh, they have a three-year-old daughter. And so this one just hits home for me because I have a two-year-old. Um, and so they have a three-year-old daughter and they were at daycare earlier this week. And, and there, was another, there was a little boy that he's just rough. He's hard, he's rougher around the edges. And the, the little boy actually hurt their daughter like pretty significantly. And as a parent, you go, oh, stop it, prevent it. Make sure that doesn't happen again. Change it, like daycare people, come on, get on it. There's a piece of me that like wants to jump in and defend and fix and then talk to, right? Like if it's my daughter, I'm going, okay, we're gonna make sure this never happens again. And, and so they're talking to me, they're sharing, it's just great friends of ours. And they're going, we're, we're talking to our daughter, like it's okay, you don't have to be friends with everybody. Like it, sometimes it's okay to keep a distance and to stay separated, whatever. And, it, and they said, I wrote this down because I wanted to get it. She said, yeah, but Coda doesn't get friends. Something a three-year-old understands, I think, is something we can walk away with today. I believe that three-year-old has better vision than most of us do in adulthood. Who don't see the pain, who don't see the brokenness, who don't see the sin, who don't see the wrongdoing, but who actually see the broken heart that Jesus sees and understands the invitation to draw forward, to move towards, to extend grace, to extend love, because as one who has been forgiven much, also loves much. Father, we just pray right now that this week as we go out, you would give us vision to see the way you see things. Father, I know names are coming to mind, people, relationships, family members, coworkers, bosses, Father, you name it, so many around us that have maybe wronged us or hurt us or said just stupid things that hurt. Father, even on a flip side, so many of us carry just a weight of a reputation of sin or brokenness or wrongdoing that it seems like no matter what we do, we can't outrun it. Father, we come before you right now. We ask for vision to see ourselves and vision to see other people the way you see us. That you've, great, you've made the great exchange that on the cross, just as we were talking about and singing about earlier, you said, I will take what they cannot get rid of. I will take their debt. I will pay their debt. I will set them free and set them loose as ambassadors and as representatives of me to a very lost and broken world. Father, stir in us a desire and a passion to do that for you and your kingdom today. Father, we pray this all in Jesus' precious and powerful name. And everybody said together,